Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. It was a series of explosions that shut down the city for days and put Guido Amsel behind bars, charged with five counts of attempted murder. Now, testimony from responding officers paints the gruesome details of what happened. The first bomb exploded in the hands of lawyer Maria Ventusis. It was like an empty glove, said Constable Paul Barker. The skin was still there, but the flesh and the bone were gone. Her shirt, blouse and shorts were completely soaked with blood, images shown to a courtroom for the very first time. There was a considerable amount of blood, said Barker. She mentioned that her hand stung. She wasn't aware of the extent of her injury an injury that resulted in the loss of her right hand. Constable Brian Newman and his team combed through her office on their hands and knees. Investigators pieced together tiny fragments of paper, a note believed to accompany the bomb, which was housed in a pocket recording device. Hi, Maria. Push enter to start. Listen to the conversation and phone me. We'll help your defense. In the following days, two more bombs were found and destroyed. One investigator say was addressed to Amsel's ex-wife. That explosive was found inside an electronic greeting card that played the song Shake Your Groove Thing. The other at another law firm that represented Amsel in a bitter divorce, accompanied by another message, report or we blow your head off. Guido Amsel was a man looking for revenge. And he didn't only consider it he exacted it, and we are going to talk about him today. So please, don't leave me. Iris met Guido in 1985, and they got married in Germany in 1988. Guido was in the German military at the time they met. Guido and Iris built a home in the rural municipality of St. Clements in the early 1990s. In 1995, Guido Amsel was charged with assault and uttering threats. The alleged victim in that case, a landlord, reported that there was a dispute when Amsel rented space in his Springfield Road property. The landlord said Amsel brought in a mechanic which was considered to be competition. A dispute happened when Guido allegedly tried to take something from the building, which was not allowed under the lease agreement. The landlord said Guido yelled at him in German and threatened him after spitting in his face. Those charges were stayed and Guido was under a peace bond for a year in order to stay away from the man who accused him of the charges. Guido Amsel filed for divorce in 2001, about 10 years after the couple had immigrated to Canada from their native Germany. Divorce proceedings dragged on for more than a decade. The couple separated in 2003 after 15 years of marriage and got divorced in 2004. Guido Amsel and Iris Amsel continued to work together at their auto body business, Eurotech, where Iris was the bookkeeper. With the divorce, Iris became a 50% partner in the business and assumed full ownership of the family home after her parents paid Guido Amsel $85,000 to buy him out. Iris kept living in the home in St. Clements after the divorce. A year after the couple divorced, 
Guido married a woman from the Philippines who he met online. In 2009, court documents show that police seized 19 weapons from Guido Amsel's home on Pandora Avenue and from his former home in St. Clements. Some of the guns included a Winchester and an unregistered Luger handgun. Winnipeg police would not comment about what happened to the firearms, but said in cases that do not result in a conviction, the weapons are usually returned. In 2010, Iris sued Guido Amsel for money that she felt she was still owed from their joint business. Iris said she continued to work with Amsel until 2009 when he forced her out. After learning she had assumed a fake online identity years earlier in an effort to disrupt his relationship with his new wife, Guido denied he owed the money and he countersued in 2011. Guido Amsel went to the RCMP's Commercial Crimes Unit to make a fraud complaint. He accused his ex-wife of stealing $3 million from the business by sending checks to her parents in Germany. He said he discovered the questionable financial transactions in that case. RCMP Sergeant Dan Bresciani testified that he determined no criminal investigation was warranted. Bresciani said that shortly after he told Amsel they would not be moving forward, the accused filed a public complaint against him. Guido Amsel alleged that Bresciani showed a neglect of duty and improper attitude during the handling of the case. The divorce continued to drag on for years, and Guido Amsel changed lawyers twice. Guido also accused his ex-wife of planning to take the couple's son to Germany and never returning. Iris Amsel denied all allegations. Guido refused to sign travel documents allowing her to bring her son to Germany. And she claimed, he assumed our son would be a flight risk with me. Guido did play child support, but later he decided the boy was not his son. A DNA test later proved that it was in fact Guido's son. In both cases, Iris was represented by Maria Matusis, a 38-year-old lawyer that was employed at Peterson King Law Offices in Winnipeg. Amsel's son was going away to university, so Iris had Maria file a motion asking for child support to continue after his 18th birthday. This was given because he was in school. Later, an explosion at Iris Amsel's home in St. Clements happened on December 2013 during their legal dispute. It caused damage to the front of the home, including a large crater in the wall of the attached garage. David Kane, one of her neighbors, said the blast was so powerful it knocked him onto the floor of his home. He claimed, I was reading a good novel and something rocked my world and literally threw me onto the floor. There was blackening around the window of their garage and the window of the garage was blown out. Luckily, no one was injured. Two days after the explosion, Kane said the RCMP's bomb unit visited Iris Samsel's home. He said the RCMP told him there was an explosion of some kind, but Iris never offered up an explanation about what happened. Amsel continued to operate the numbered company. Records from the rural municipality of Springfield just outside Winnipeg show that he was granted the right in the fall of 2014 to set up a small car lot in the community. He was scheduled to apply for another business permit at the end of May, but his representative did not attend. This is according to minutes of the council meeting. The acrimony 
appeared to end in a pretrial conference on March 30th of 2015. A memorandum from the meeting says that Guido Amsel agreed that he owed his ex-wife $40,000 plus interest. He dropped his countersuit and agreed to sell off vehicles and equipment to get the money in a sale set for July 11th, 2015. Instead, the auction was postponed and Amsel stands accused by the police of seeking violent retribution against his former spouse and the lawyers involved in the case. Iris Amsel was returning home from a road trip with her brother to Alberta on July 3rd of 2015 when she turned on her car radio and she heard some startling news. I heard there was a bombing and that Maria Matusis was severely injured. After hearing about her injury, she immediately phoned her boyfriend's business associate, James Block. She said, do you realize this is my lawyer? Iris said she was still en route home when Block sent her a picture of a package that was addressed to her and delivered to Block's Washington Avenue auto body garage. Iris believed that the handwriting on the package seemed similar to Guido Amsel's. When she and her brother arrived home, they inspected the house to make sure everything was as they left it. Iris said she found some papers with Guido's handwriting and compared them to the picture of the package. I thought many of the letters were similar to the samples that I had. Iris and Block met at the auto body garage the next morning to look at the package. We decided not to touch this letter, she said. We knew the return address did not exist, and we wanted to make sure this wasn't something that would potentially harm us. She then reported the suspicious package to the police. Three packages were sent on June 29th and 30th through Canada Post and delivered July 2nd and 3rd of 2015. On July 3rd of 2015, a mail bomb exploded at 252 River Avenue, seriously injuring Iris Amsel's then-lawyer, Maria Matusis. Only one person was hurt, and fortunately, she was very hurt. When Maria got to the office, she noticed a package on her desk. I decided to open it, she says. Inside was a pouch and a note saying that it would help me with my case. She said inside was a dictaphone. I remember picking it up. The first thought that went through my mind was, this is weird. She said she read the note a few times. All I could think about, what the message was going to be, what was going to be said. She closed the door and was holding the recording in her right hand and the note in her left. So I pressed the button. I remember the sound, which was a firecracker pop. It felt like I was reeling for a moment. Everything seemed like it shifted. I remember feeling off balance, feeling like I was underwater, off balance and dizzy. She said she could feel sharp pieces in her mouth, but wasn't aware of how badly she was injured. Immediately after the bomb exploded inside the small family law firm where Maria worked, she slumped in her doorway, covered in blood, and she begged a colleague not to leave her side. I heard a large bang and there was a scream followed with a second scream. Connie Peterson, the managing partner at the King Peterson Law Firm, claimed. Maria was walking out of her office and she slid down the side of her doorframe. Two co-workers called 911 and they were told to evacuate the office. Maria said, please don't leave me, please comfort me. There was a lot of blood going down from her throat. Matusis would undergo surgery in the hours that followed the explosion. 
She lost her right hand in the blast and suffered severe injuries to her face, torso, and legs. Later that evening, some witnesses claimed they heard a loud explosion around 9.45 p.m. It was outside the law firm Oral, Bargain, and Davidson on Stradbrook Avenue. That was the second mail bomb, and it was being safely detonated where a former female lawyer of Guido Amsel used to work. There was some damage to a window in the building, but there were no reports of anyone else being hurt. The bombs were hidden in gray recording devices and sent through the mail. A third bomb had accidentally been delivered across the street from Iris Amsel's Washington Avenue workplace. This bomb was intended for his ex-wife. The business owner and mechanic who got the package joked that it appeared to have Guido Amsel's writing on it. They later brought it to Iris Amsel's shop across the street, where the next day police came, they safely detonated it. The bomb unit was deployed to SeaTac Automotive used car sales and Eurotech Auto Body, both of which were taped off in the 2000 block of Springfield Road. Police evacuated properties in the area as a precaution, and investigators searched the building. Officers also executed a search warrant in a home at the 600 block of Pandora Avenue. Police officers were seen tagging several guns at Amsel's Pandora home. Meanwhile, police claimed Amsel targeted law firms that had represented himself or his ex-wife in the past, and they warned that other packages may be delivered to lawyers or justice officials in the city. In court, on July 9th of 2015, Amsel didn't have a lawyer. He told the judge he was talking to a lawyer but wasn't yet represented by anyone. A number of lawyers contacted said they were reluctant to take on the case. They were concerned not only for their own safety but for their staff. Not only that, but some have donated to a GoFundMe page for Matusa's recovery, which put them in a conflict that prevents them from representing him. It's become clear he's having difficulty there was an email sent out by a lawyer to all criminal lawyers asking if anyone wants to represent him, said the Winnipeg criminal lawyer Jay Prover. At trial, Ollie Ermintrout was heard saying that Guido's divorce with his ex-wife left him upset to the point of shaking. Ollie told court another man who worked at his shop, Kevin McKenzie, had received the mail on Thursday, July 2nd and brought the package over to an area of the shop where he was working. It said Ollie's auto and it said Iris Amsel, he testified. He told court that he flexed the package and was bending it and waving it beside his head before Mackenzie took it to Iris's workplace at James Automotive to drop it off. Although, court heard, Iris was out of town at the time. Ollie's auto, located at 599 Washington Avenue, was a neighboring business about 150 feet away from James Automotive. Ermintrout told Judge Tracy Lord it didn't make sense that the package was sent to his shop because everyone knew Iris wasn't there. He said, we looked at it and the letter looked like chicken scratch printing. He said Mackenzie joked that it looked like kids writing, like Guido's writing. I've known Guido for years, Ermintrout testified. We've written, talked, the shoe fit. During cross-examination, Amsel's lawyer Shahil Zaman called into question Ermin Trout's testimony based on prior statements that he gave the police. 
Did you, sir, not tell Kevin McKenzie that you weren't sure whether you thought it was Guido's writing or not? I don't recall saying what you're saying, Herman Trout replied. He testified that he became friends with Guido Amsel several years ago when Guido and Iris helped him start his own automotive business. They fed me. I didn't know anybody, Herman Trout told court. They gave me work. He told court he and Guido had a falling out but eventually became friends again, calling Guido one of the smartest people I know. Ermentrout told court after Guido and Iris separated that Guido talked to him about how millions of dollars were taken away from him and how everybody was against him. After Iris Amsel and Guido Amsel had split, that's when all the talking started, Ermentrout told court. It was something you could tell hurt him personally. Ollie Ermentrout testified he couldn't recall the exact date when he and Guido were sport shooting off Highway 44 and he asked Guido about the 2013 explosion at Iris' house. Ollie testified that he asked Guido, did you bomb Iris' house? He told court there was no yes, no, no. It was almost a blank off stare, but no response, which Ermentrout thought was an unusual response for Guido. Guido's the kind of guy who would just tell you straight up. Ermentrout told court that Amsel then asked him, if the first time misses, do you think the second time would miss? Ollie testified that he didn't ask Guido any more questions about the incident. I'm not going to sit there and try to force him to say something. Amsel's lawyer challenged the witness's testimony. During cross-examination, his lawyer asked him, Did you have any other conversations with Mr. Amsel about the 2013 incident? Ollie replied, not to my recollection. Does that mean you're not certain? There's a possibility there could have been other conversations? I'm actually going to change that to no. I don't remember having any other conversations other than that one conversation I had. Zayman later asked Ermentrout if he remembered the year the conversation occurred. 2014 or 2015, he testified. In all honesty, I didn't pay attention at the time. I know it wasn't winter but I can't remember to tell you the honest truth. I take it being a close friend, you would have contacted police or contacted Iris to let her know, Simon said. Ermentrout testified he didn't contact police about the conversation that he had with Amsel and he can't remember whether or not he told Iris. Police were already investigating it. I'm assuming police were on top of their jobs, he said. Amsel and his ex-wife Iris's longtime friend, Georgie Olga Marie Zacharias, testified that handwriting on an envelope was consistent with the style of Guido, Iris, and their son. Yet, an FBI handwriting expert, Peter Belcastro, said four writing samples seized from the three bomb packages, all written in block letters, may have been prepared by the same writer or writers. However, when he compared those same four writing samples to documents confirmed to contain Amsel's writing, he found both similarities and inconsistencies. That left him unable to determine whether Amsel was the person who addressed the mail bombs and wrote a note included in one of the packages. While he couldn't tie the writing on the packages to Amsel, he also couldn't rule him out. 
I was able to reach a no conclusion determination based on the limited clarity and unknown characteristics. He noted that his assessment was complicated by the fact he was working from photographs and not originals. There was limited uppercase handwriting repeated in the confirmed Amsel writings, allowing me to make a conclusion either way. I can have a hundred pages of known handwriting, but if I'm comparing it to hand printing, the hundred pages of handwriting means nothing. Belcastro said in an ideal situation, a suspect would be requested to supply investigators with fresh signatures. They'd also be asked to supply lengthy writing samples to provide a meaningful comparison. Court heard no evidence Amsel provided any handwriting samples to the investigators. Guido Amsel, 51, is still accused of the 2013 explosion outside the home of his ex-wife that didn't cause any injuries. In all, he faces five counts of attempted murder and several explosive-related charges, and is being tried by a judge alone. The trial heard from police officers who say the package that exploded in Matusa's office contained a voice recorder with an explosive compound. It was designed to detonate when the play button was pressed. There was also a note instructing her to press play, they testified. The trial also heard from Carly Kaplan, a legal assistant who worked on the law firm's reception desk. She said a package came in the mail from Matusis the day before the explosion while she was out of the office, so Kaplan placed it on her desk. Kaplan said that Matusis returned the next day, went into her office, and a few minutes there was a loud noise. Kaplan ran to the office and saw Matusis on her hands and knees. Her face was covered in blood. Her clothes were covered in blood, she testified. Amsel's lawyer questioned how police officers handled evidence collected and whether they properly secured the scene to avoid it being contaminated by others. At one point, he asked Peterson whether, as managing partner, she had even been told by Matusis of any animosity or problems that were stemming from the divorce. Guido's lawyer asked her, You'd agree with me that Matusis didn't bring up the Iris Amsel's file as problematic. No, not that I can recall, Peterson replied. She told court she usually opens mail, which is business-related, but she said the package arrived Thursday and appeared personal in nature. It had a return address from a different law firm, which Matusis used to work at, and she didn't think it was unusual. Sometime around my lunchtime, I had put the package on Maria's desk. It was a brown cardboard box in a rectangular shape. On the Friday morning that Matusis arrived back at work, Kaplan testified they exchanged hellos and good mornings, and she told court that it was 10 or 15 minutes later that she heard the loud noise and didn't know what it was. She told court she could see a window in the office had been shattered and there was smoke in the room. I started hearing screaming which sounded like Maria. I could see where her office was and she was outside of her hallway in the office on all fours. I had no idea what happened at all. The Peterson King managing partner, Connie Peterson, told court that 911 advised her staff to leave the building. This is when Maria looked up at me and said, don't leave me, please comfort me. She said she stayed with Matusis and applied pressure to her wounds until the first responders arrived. Peterson also told court that Matusis would turn to her for help if she had issues with certain files, 
She testified she wasn't aware at the time of the incident or any problem cases. Peterson also told court she wasn't aware at the time that one of Matusa's clients was Amsel's ex-wife, Iris Amsel. During cross-examination, Guido's lawyer pointed out that the package pictured in court evidence is white. Kaplan explained she was in shock at the aftermath of the incident when she gave the initial statement to police. Guido Amsel's ex-wife took the stand as a key witness called by the Crown. She was there testifying against the accused letter bomber and her ex-husband. In an unexpected twist, the defense painted a different picture that suggested she was the one behind the 2015 bombings. Iris and Guido were caught in a bitter divorce with hundreds of thousands of dollars and a home and business at stake. Crown attorneys painted a picture of Guido as an overbearing ex-husband who withheld money from his ex. But it was when the defense started its cross-examination the real twist happened. Sahil Zaman, Guido's lawyer, asked Iris if she was mad when Guido asked for a divorce. She admitted that at the time, she didn't want her marriage to end. Iris even confirmed that she set up a fake online account and pretended to be someone that she was not. After an hour of intense cross-examination, Zaman suggested Iris was the one responsible for sending the letter bombs and framing Guido in an act of revenge. He said, I'm going to suggest that it was you who planted the bomb, that it was you who sent the package to Ollie's with your name on it, that it was you who sent the package to Maria Matusis's office. Iris denied the accusation. Zayman also asked if she was responsible for trying to break up the marriage before it happened by sending emails under a fake person's name. She said no. The defense lawyer accused Iris of mailing the bomb packages to herself and others in an effort to cast blame on Guido and prevent him from pursuing her for the missing money. No, that's not correct, Iris said. Zayman alleged that Iris was angry at Guido after he married a woman 17 years her junior, just one year after their divorce. You were upset by the fact he wanted to divorce you and you were out to destroy his relationship, he said. Iris admitted to creating a fake online identity, a man named Adrian, but denied any direct communication with Guido's soon-to-be new wife. This Adrian character was expressing interest in Guido's wife and indicating that he had lots of money, Simon alleged. That's not true, Iris replied. When the woman that Guido Amsel was involved with suffered a motorcycle accident in the Philippines, Iris sent dead flowers to her hospital room, Zayman alleged. I don't recall. I know I personally did not send any flowers, she responded. When asked if she had someone else send the flowers, she responded, Dead flowers? No. Any other kind of flowers, Zayman asked? To which Iris replied, It's possible. When Guido asked Iris to send a letter to Immigration Canada in support of his new wife, Iris wrote that the woman was a prostitute. When questioned in court, she said it's possible, but she didn't recall. Jeremy Kostowick, the lawyer for Guido, was questioning the validity of warrants used in the investigation. 
He told the provincial court judge it appears police left out important information when they applied for warrants against Guido Amsel. He said it appears police did not mention that the tests pointed to explosive residue on Amsel's hands were preliminary and still needed to be verified in a lab. Kostwick asked provincial court judge Tracy Lord to allow him to cross-examine the police officers on how they gathered evidence and documented the investigation. There are glaring questions in my submission as to the good faith of the Winnipeg police, he told court. He said the court must determine whether the left-out information in the application for warrants was in good faith as an accident or negligence and deceit. Guido Amsel took the stand December 13, 2017. In his own attempted murder trial, he testified he never sent an explosive to anybody. He wore a headset and a blue suit as he sat in the witness box with his current wife, and other supporters were in the courtroom as well. He appeared very calm and thorough as he discussed coming to Canada, building his home and business, and Iris's reaction to their divorce. He said Iris was not happy about it. She told me many times, your new wife, all she wants is money. She wanted me to get back together with her, he said. Under questioning from his lawyer, he told court that he didn't have any knowledge in building explosives and that he didn't send a pouch, note, or voice recorder to Maria Matusis. Court previously had heard that Ansel's DNA was found on a pouch in her office and on a piece of string following the explosion outside of his ex-wife's home in December 2013. Amsel testified he left the string behind on the property when he was designing the driveway and planting trees. When Guido was quizzed on the batteries and copper parts found in his house, he said they were from toys for his kids and his wife's cell phone. He also told court he spent time in the boardroom of Matusa's former office in 2011, making photocopies of court documents, and that he had a habit of poking, scratching himself, and sweating as he pored over documents. When Guido Amsel thought he was wronged, he resorted to the courts and police, not bombs, his lawyer told the Winnipeg court in closing arguments. Zaman spent a great deal of time detailing the police seizure of countless exhibits following the explosions, alleging that insufficient measures were taken to prevent cross-contamination. Amsel testified that he felt Iris was behind the bombs going so far as to send bombs to her own home and workplace, and he believes some lawyers and police officers have been involved in efforts to build a case against him. Zaman said Amsel's theories are not evidence of any guilt. It's indicative of a man trying to make sense of why he's been charged with something that he didn't do. Vanderhoft said there's an ample amount of evidence to prove all four bombs were the work of the same man, Guido Amsel, and to believe otherwise would defy all common sense. Vanderhoft said Amsel tailored his testimony to fit the forensic evidence that was already provided to court. Mr. Amsel is not simply the victim of circumstance, he said. He sent the bombs. His explanations don't hold any water. Amsel offered several different explanations for how his DNA came to be on the plastic pouch that was seized from Matusa's office, 
including an allegation that he had been framed by his previous lawyer, the Crown, and the RCMP. Vanderhoof said a police picture of the explosion scene shows file boxes with their lids still secure. We're somehow supposed to accept that this DNA belonging to him miraculously leapt from inside that box across the room and landed on the pouch. In another explanation, Ansel suggested he may have touched the pouch while looking at merchandise at a Dollarama store where the pouch may have been purchased. That evidence is clearly contrived and convenient in an attempt to make you believe that anything coming out of that store would have his DNA on it, Vanderhoof said. Do you believe these explanations? The obvious answer is no, and it doesn't raise a reasonable doubt either, Vanderhoof told Justice Tracy Lord. Vanderhoof indicated that Amsel had a clear motive for the bombings. He believed his wife had stolen millions of dollars from him and that his own lawyer, whose boss was a target of a bomb, had been paid to drop his case. He went to the RCMP and he thought Iris Amsel was stealing from him and he wanted her in jail, Vanderhoof said. There's no coincidence that Iris Amsel was targeted and she was a victim not once, but twice. I remember very clearly everything that happened. I remember everything to the moment that I was rolled into the uh, emergency room at HSC. So I remember being in the ambulance. I remember everything from that moment. I couldn't believe what happened and somehow I knew what had happened, but I remember thinking to myself, this is not possible. I didn't know the extent of my injuries at the time, I knew I was injured. I knew that I had to get help. I knew that what had happened was some kind of explosive device, but it was just so unthinkable and I remember just being incredulous. I do remember my door was closed like it is right now and I remember walking to the door and I remember that I had my arms around my stomach because that's, I, I don't know why, but I, I remember my arms holding myself and um, opening the door. And I suspect I must have used my elbows. I don't remember exactly how, but the doorknob is a lever, so. And then when I opened the door, Kathy, who you met, was sitting outside. And, and I, I know from what they've told me, they, they'd heard the sound. And, and as soon as I opened the door, Connie and Kathy had already been on the phone with, the, with 911, and I saw Connie um, running down the hallway to me. And then we... I sat down just outside this window, and that's where we waited for um, the first responders. I remember very consciously at some point thinking to myself, wondering what blood loss, because I remember thinking, okay, I feel like I got it together. I think I'm, because I wasn't sure what my injuries were. I didn't know certainly what I looked like or what, what the scene was, and I, I didn't know whether I was badly injured or, uh, so I wasn't, <laughs> I couldn't really self-assess the damage. But then I, I remember it occurred to me at one moment, like, well, wait a minute, you could be bleeding to death, right? You could have this, an artery could be severed. Like, I, I, you feel fine right now, but, but what if? And I remember those what ifs um, coming into my mind. Um, but then I just knew, okay, well, I can't do much about that at this precise moment in time. I just have to breathe, not panic. 
I suspect I knew that my hand was, my right hand was um, severely injured because I think I was protecting it. I suspect that's what I was doing, holding it against my stomach without consciously uh, doing that. But I knew I didn't want to let go of my arms. So I did know that I could feel in my face um, the pieces of foreign objects in my lips, like I could feel them from the inside of my mouth. So I knew that, I, that my face was um, injured, just because I could feel it. <laughs> um, and, and actually, it's in a weird way, I hope it's not too much information, but in a weird way, I, I think that it actually gave me um, some reassurance that I knew I was dealing with. I'm like, okay, I can feel there's a piece of metal in my mouth. Like, I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of got it. I'm like, okay, I, I check, got that. That's what's wrong with me. You know, rather than it was what I wasn't sure about. You know, the internally, yeah, the, the the the. You know, I know Connie had 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 a towel or something. She was holding my neck and my chin. So I thought, okay, something's wrong there. But then I thought, well, if you've got a lot of arteries, all of it, it's like you just, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't know. Um, and so I, I knew that time was of the essence. Like I, I did know that. Maria Matusis is in a common law relationship with Barry Gorlick, a Winnipeg lawyer who was recently disbarred after he admitted to 15 counts of professional misconduct. One source said Matusis lost one hand in the blast and was in danger of losing the other one. There was never any doubt in Maria's mind that one day she would return to her family law practice at the all-female law firm of Peterson King. Despite having suffered life-altering injuries in the explosion at work, Matusis said, I had no doubt from the beginning. I knew that if things were going well, and if I was healing at that rate that I wanted to heal at, and if emotionally I was doing well, then I'd see myself going back to work within a year. And that was immediately my plan. Nearly a year has passed, and Matusis, 39, is once again sitting in her office. The space looks exactly like it did before the explosion. She even hung all of her pictures in the same places. She talks openly about what happened that day and the road ahead of her with humor and humility. The explosion may have altered Matusis' life, but she will not let it define her. Life will throw sometimes extraordinary situations at you, but it's how you respond that defines you as a person. That's your character, she said. On July 3rd, Matusis was out golfing with her girlfriends that morning and later stopped at the office to clear a few things up and get an early start to the long weekend. Like most Fridays, she knew her partner would be by shortly to drop off cinnamon buns. She was in her office when she opened a package sitting on her desk with the mail, and inside was an audio recording device with a bomb built into it. I remember thinking to myself, this is not possible. I didn't know the extent of my injuries at the time, but I knew I was injured, and I knew that I had to get help. Matusis lost her right hand in the blast, but doctors were able to save her left hand. She also suffered burns to her face, stomach, and thighs. She said the people who came to her aid were brave, calm, organized, professional, and reassuring, which helped her and her colleagues deal with the crisis situation. 
It was something about the way in which these individuals comported themselves that gave me courage. And I think it gave it to the women who were in my office. We went through this together and they gave us strength, she said. I did not know at the time whether or not if I was going to be okay, but in the very long minutes I knew that I was, at least for that time, safe and in good hands. Constable Paul Barker was in the area on an unrelated incident when the bomb call from dispatch was overheard on his radio. The 11-year-old veteran with the Winnipeg Police Service was the first officer to arrive at 252 River Avenue. He said he was on the scene within 90 seconds and saw a woman from the building entrance waving her hands frantically to get his attention. That's when Constable Barker was rushed into the side of the injured woman who he later learned was Maria. He found her sitting on the floor in front of her office and the door was closed and she was clutching her abdomen. He told everyone to get out of the office and called for an ambulance. There was a considerable amount of blood, Barker said. He noted Matusis had serious injuries to her throat and blood was running down the front of her. She mentioned that her hand stung. She wasn't aware at all of the extent of her injuries. He said her left hand suffered major damage, but it was her right hand that sustained the worst of it. It was like an empty glove. The skin was there, but the flesh and bone were gone. She was rushed into surgery and didn't know the extent of her injuries until she woke up in the hospital hours later. She had underwent 12 hours of surgery following the blast. Constable Brian Raymond Newman was involved in all three scenes in July where the letter bombs were sent. His testimony focused on the photographs taken at 252 River Avenue on July 3rd. He went through at least 70 photographs taken, most of which centered around Matusis' office. They found pieces of her broken eyeglasses and lots of fragments of yellow paper. The officer said there was an orange and purple pouch found on her desk. It's believed the explosive was inside that pouch, and that was mailed in the envelope. Paper fragments with capitalized handwritten text were found throughout the area around her desk. Constable Newman said he and other officers put together the pieces of yellow paper that they believed formed a note that accompanied the explosive. While he said some pieces were missing, he testified they were able to read most of what it said after it was reconstructed. Hi, Maria. Push enter to start. Listen to the conversation and phone me. It will help your defense. The numbers 95606 on one portion of the paper, which officers believe are part of a phone number. Constable Newman spoke of the second bomb location at 597 Washington Avenue. He told court the package had been bubble wrapped and was neutralized by the bomb unit. Newman said there was another message passed into the copper body of the device. The device was shattered and police could only make out a portion of the message. It said something similar to turn what you soul, your helpers of Kura. <laughs> the third bomb location Newman discussed was 280 Stradbrook Avenue. Newman said the third device was inside the type of greeting card that has movement and made a sound when opened. He said a capsule was found at the scene after being digitally examined. 
and a third message was found in all capitalized letters. Report, or we blow your head off. I remember waking up and seeing my arms. I knew immediately my hand wasn't in a splint or it was wrapped, and my other hand was a complete splint with just my fingertips showing, and I hadn't looked, Matusa said. I didn't see my face. I knew what the rest of the damage was to my body because I could see that, but my face and my neck, I didn't look into a mirror until afterwards. Remarkably, Matusa's returned to the law firm one week later to support colleagues who were going back to work for the first time. I know that my co-workers were, after it happened, very shaken up and they had a hard time coming back after the office was closed, and I came here to see them the day they reopened. That was a really important day for all of us because I wanted them to see me, that I was okay, that I needed time to get better, but that I was ready to get back to the space and that it wasn't the space that was the problem. Friends and strangers helped in her healing. She saw her office for the first time a few days later and found that a client had already been by with the flower Mandela to purify the space in preparation for her arrival. It's meant to bring peace and to bring beauty to a place that had been witness to a terrible, terrible thing. That actually made me feel like someone had gone in first for me, she said. Colleagues of the 38-year-old set up a fundraising website, which had raised almost $15,000 in as little as 24 hours. The site said Matusas faces a long road to recovery. A source in the legal community said Matusas has undergone surgery and had lost one of her hands and suffered severe injuries. We are continuing on and it's our space and we are very proud of this office and we work so well together. And surprisingly, Matusas is not haunted by visions of what happened. For that, she credits the support of loved ones and colleagues and the kindness of strangers. Anyone who thinks they're alone or that no one is thinking of them or that we live in a pretty dark world it's nice to be reminded that there are people who will just stop in, she said. There's a notepad on her desk from a couple she'd never met that said she loved life and it loved her right back. It still happens. I'll come in and the front desk will say, oh, someone just popped in to drop off a little guff for you. Those gestures make Matusis and her co-workers smile in the very place where they suffered unimaginable hurt. I've had to take a hard look at my life and others, and I think that, despite being challenged, I think there's a lot of positive. She said, I've concluded that there are many, many more positive things that I can tell you about these experiences. Matusis has a new keyboard that will allow her to type with one hand. Things that were automatic and second nature, just typing an email or anything, Writing is something, actually. That's something I do miss. The physical act of writing, she said. I used to write in a journal. I like to see my letters on paper. It sounds cheesy, but I've always liked the look of my handwriting. I miss that I'm not at this stage going to have that distinct handwriting that belonged to me. But on the big scope of things, the big picture, I think that's pretty minor. She said that she has to focus on things that she can do and she wants to learn to golf again, 
using her left hand. She's also taken up horseback riding. While some people have described Matusis as a hero, she disagrees. I think the heroes are the women who were there, she said, referring to her office staff. I knew what I had to do, but no one signed up for that. And for the women in my office to get me through it, that, to me, is extraordinary. Here's the disconnect. Or the things that would make this case seem more complicated than it is on the surface. The same day that Maria Matusist was harmed, as Guido Amsel attempted to get revenge on his ex-wife, this lawyer, who practiced at an all-female law firm to protect families in family court, was the only one who was injured the same day Winnipeg lawyer Barry Gorlick was disbarred for professional misconduct. The Law Society of Manitoba released a report saying that he was no longer allowed to practice law. He was called to the bar in 1980 and was cited for incidents dating from 1994 to 2014. They found that Mr. Gorlick engaged in years of unethical conduct that culminated in deliberate acts of misappropriation. He chose to take someone's money to meet his personal commitments. During a panel hearing last fall, he pled guilty to 15 counts of misconduct, including failure to serve a client, failure to conduct himself in a courteous manner, and breach of duty to act with integrity as well as misappropriating client funds. This includes the deliberate creation of false documents as well as misleading his staff and partners. A total of almost $60,000 of client trust money was paid to his personal benefit. On the Friday, it was learned the victim of an explosion at Peterson King Law Offices was Gorlick's romantic partner, Maria Matusis. That's the same day that she opened the package from Greedo Ansel. Her common-law partner was removed from the bar. This unfortunate event coincided with her being the victim of Guido Ansel's revenge. Guido Ansel, however, had other reasons for exacting revenge, but she was his only real victim. On the same day, we're in her home of lawyers. Her common-law partner would be losing all respectability within the community of the Law Society. He would be removed from the bar that day and attending to his common-law lawyer partner that same evening. I know that my co-workers were, after it happened, um, were very shaken up. And they had a hard time coming back after the office was closed. And um, I came here to see them the day they reopened. Um, and that was a really important day for all of us because I wanted them, I wanted them to see me, that I was okay, that I would, I needed to had time to, you know, to get better, but that I was ready to come back to the space and that it wasn't the space that was the problem. 
we're continuing on and, and it, it is our space and we are very proud of this office and we're very, we work so well together and there are people who want to be part of this team. They, I think they've seen how these remarkable women that I work with have conducted themselves and have carried themselves through what's happened with grace and with you know, not blaming what we do for a living and what happened, um, you know, life will throw sometimes extraordinary situations at you, but it's how you respond that defines, you know, who you are as a person and your character. Here's the thing. Guido Amso was plagued with paranoia and acted out in acts of revenge every time he perceived he was dishonored. When he was called out for breaking the lease on his business by hiring a mechanic, he attempted to remove items illegally from the premises. When the landlord approached him about the misconduct, he spit in his face and threatened him. Later, police seized over 19 weapons from his home, another sign of paranoia. When his wife tried to sue him for money to send their child to university, he claimed that the son was not his biologically. DNA proved that was untrue. And then, later when Iris wanted to travel with their son to the homeland in Germany, Guido refused to sign the paperwork allowing his son to travel out of the country with his ex-wife. He claimed she wouldn't return with their son and he didn't trust them to leave. Later, when Iris sued for money that she believed she was owed for her portion of the business, Guido countersued claiming she was pilfering millions of dollars from the company accounts. When an RCMP investigation refused to charge Iris because they could find no evidence to support his allegations, he placed a complaint against the officer claiming he didn't do his due diligence and was neglectful of his duties. Then, during legal disputes arising from their divorce, a bomb was set off at the home of Iris and his son, and they had paid him $85,000 for the privilege. In final arguments, his lawyer claimed that Guido Amsel felt that his previous lawyer had been paid off by Iris to damage his case, that the RCMP were against him, and that the police had intentionally mishandled evidence in the bombing investigations to single him out. He took it further, claiming he was the victim of a setup on the part of his ex-partner, as she was the one who sent the bombs to the law offices to make it appear that he was on a dangerous rampage for revenge. When recording devices similar to the ones in the bomb packages were found on his property, he claimed they were used to record Christmas carols. And when his DNA was found on the package in Maria's office, he rebuffed that claim, saying he may have touched the paper the package was wrapped in at a store where Maria later purchased it. The inability to see the ridiculousness of his assertions and accusations is pure narcissism. And his red-hot need to exact revenge on everyone around him is the very reason he should be behind bars. For most of us, Acting vengefully doesn't get past the fantasy stage. Rationality will always instruct moral codes eventually. But why do some people fall victim to their own need for revenge? It's a response to injustice that goes far back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Revenge isn't like pure aggression. It needs to be provoked by some perceived injustice. Revenge is more like punishment a punishment that releases tension in the aggressor. It's a selfish act that the offender believes is a noble one. To add to this, a researcher named Tanya Singer gathered some of her colleagues to measure the effects of revenge emotion 
in both men and women. It turned out women felt mostly remorseful and empathized with their target, but men were delivered a jolt of pleasure in the brain. This was according to MRIs measuring the effects of revenge. I don't know if it's a men versus women thing, but I do think that some people are wired up to seek revenge to fulfill that fantasy of making things right, while others may be more aware of future consequences. And they deem revenge as a temporary exaltation that's better brushing off. Researchers do say that people are much more inclined to exact revenge when their reputation is at stake and those who seek to create fear in people, so they're perceived as a person you would not want to mess with, is more important to them than to be perceived as a decent person. These people suffer more worry and insecurity, feeding them into that vortex of getting revenge as opposed to sorting things out so they can get on with the bigger picture in their life. In the case of Guido Amsel, I think his behavior shows that he has no insight into his own insecurities and his narcissism is more of a defense mechanism. He's in epic denial and remains dangerous until he has self-awareness. Counter to that, Maria Matusis, who was the innocent victim falling into his sights and isn't vengeful or aggressive at all, has used this situation to reaffirm her worldview that in times of strife, many people will come to your aid. She credits the medics and her co-workers as the real heroes that raised her back up. She saw her situation as a challenge to show her character and strength to get back to work and on with life, in spite of the Guido Amsels in the world. Because most people are not him, most people are good. <laughs> 